shiver seekers, do you dare join us in the feral unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I am Stephanie. And you have found the dark book. talking about feral children. Ooh. <laughs> what nightmares are made of. Yeah, kind of. Ooh. Kind of. This was a really hard one to research. Uh, feral children, they're also called wild children. <laughs> um, and wild on a whole nother level. And they're children through either accidentally or deliberately, you know, they're just isolated. So they've grown up with very limited human contact. Um, and isolation is more than even just being alone. It's cut off from all human contact. Uh, children that grow up in this way have no knowledge of how to communicate, interact with other humans. Many stories romanticize children growing up with wild or domestic animals. Is the Jungle Book. Exactly. Actually, we're no. going to talk about that. Oh, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. These stories of, you know, these these romantic notions of like growing up naturally in the wilderness um but the realities are not so great sure Um, yeah pretty haunting pretty difficult to imagine the lives that some of these children have had um they never learn how to really form relationships how to communicate or experience a range of emotions in short they never really gain the ability to live like a human sure yeah they'd be like more animal behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the stories of children raised by animals date back as far as ancient Rome. Romulus and Remus, the mythical twin founders of Rome, were said to have been raised by a she-wolf. Okay. If you look back in ancient mythology, you can find statues and carvings showing these two boys like nursing from a wolf. All right. So this idea of being raised by these large, powerful creatures has been around for a while. Um, Often they're associated with wolves, monkeys, dogs, um, those kinds of like four-legged, furry, more like mammalian animals. Okay. Often, though, the reason these children are found with animals is because they've been neglected neglected by their caretakers, and they're really having to survive by whatever means necessary. Um, these cases are so u- unique that only about 100 have been recorded throughout the world, uh, throughout recorded history. Wow. Which I'm grateful to hear because these stories are just so imaginable. You know, a young human being raised without any other human contact that I'm glad it's not a common occurrence. A trigger warning in this episode. There are some instances of child abuse, Hmm. child neglect. There is a small part where, you know, this episode would not be approved on does the dog die? Oh no. Yeah. So if that's triggering for you, this is your fair warning. 
Um, I will touch on four different cases in this episode. The first three are, are you know, difficult, but um, fairly uh, uh, trigger-free. Um, the last one, if you are triggered by um, child uh, abuse, neglect, then I would probably skip over the, the final um, case. I also want to say that each of these children I'm going to touch on is special. They are unique. I'm telling these stories to give their lives um, purpose, to talk about how they were able to survive in a world when not many people could. This is not meant to be exploitive or to disparage them in any way. It's merely to tell their story. Sure. Our first case dates back to 1725. I mean, that's quite a while ago. That's a long and think time. about it, there's only a hundred stories, like recorded yeah. stories. So we really had to kind of dig deep sure. <laughs> to find this one. And this is one of the first true documented cases of a feral child. So 1725, an 11-year-old boy was discovered naked, naked and alone in the German wilderness. It is believed that he was abandoned by his parents who likely couldn't afford to raise him. So they just leave him in the jungle? Yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult. Um, there have been, you know, in different times of feast and famine, it's like you can't feed your kids anymore. But I don't know. I I kind of have to go through some of these stories without judgment because it's, it's hard to. But, mm -hmm. you know, these – we don't get a lot of insight into sure. why these parents made those choices. Um, we really only see the aftermath. Sure. But yeah. it's still incredibly difficult to think about. It's hard to um, imagine doing, but different time, different and, place. And, and being that desperate that that's what you felt your only option was. Um, I don't know what I would have made the same choice. But again, I'm not in 1725 sure. and, you know, the German uh, wilderness. Yeah. So true. Okay. I will try not to judge Stephanie. <laughs> It's, it's difficult. It's difficult. So yes. I'll tell you about this little boy. So okay. he was 11 okay. um, living in the wilderness. Wow. When he was found, he had no language skills. He walked on all fours and hated wearing clothing. He had apparently survived in the woods for an unknown amount of time eating plants in the forest. Since his name was unknown, the townspeople named him Peter. He was discovered by a hunting party led by George I. So King the jo King George of Great Britain. Wow. When George's daughter-in-law, Caroline of Ansbach, the Princess of Wales, heard about Peter, she told her people to bring him to London. Wild, right? Yeah. When Peter arrived in London, he was a sensation. The whole of Britain couldn't stop talking about the boy from the forest, and he was dubbed Peter the Wild Boy. Oh, so poor Peter. Poor Peter. <laughs> so curiosity about this boy was rife because it was the age of enlightenment. Okay. And he was the symbol, like he was the, became the symbol of the debate between humans and animals, like what makes humans human. Okay. You know, when they were beginning yeah. to kind of explore the mind and explore communication and what makes us a community and a society. Many were eager to see if Peter was more like a boy or more like an animal. Okay. I'm very interested to find out. Princess Caroline, who by the way, was amazing. She tried her best to help him. She arranged for a private doctor to see him regularly. 
Unfortunately, though, all efforts to teach him to speak, read, or write would fail. And criticism of Peter's existence at the castle began to stir, with some even calling him the, quote, human pet of King George. Oh. Eventually, many of the many in the palace grew tired of Peter's antics. He had really poor table manners. Of course, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, yeah. Sure. Obviously. He's never sat at a table before. Yeah. But apparently people in the court did not like that. Okay. So I can imagine back in the 1700s, if you're part of the royal court, how this might be. Yes. Offensive. Yes. And his caretakers got kind of tired of him, too, because he always insisted on sleeping on the floor. No. And they would have to wrangle him to put on clothes for royal occasions because apparently he still had to dress the part when he was sure. like at these royal functions. But he would fight them to put them on. And then he always wanted to take them off. And it just it, it wasn't a good fit, if you will. So finally... And again, I think this is amazing, too. Eventually, they concluded that Peter would fare better outside the castle walls. And the court paid for Peter to retire at this beautiful farm in Hertfordshire. Peter spent the rest of his life surrounded by kind farmers and eventually showed the ability to understand language, but was himself only able to say Peter and King George. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I'm really curious as to how long he was alone because the the fact that he was found on all fours and had no language and stuff makes me wonder, has he been out there alone since like toddlerhood? Which is insane to think about how a toddler could survive. I don't know that it's possible that a toddler could survive. So did he just forget everything else? I don't know. Well, there is a little bit more insight to this story. Okay. So we'll get there. Okay. This happened, though, while he was living on the farm. In his mid-30s, he disappeared from the farm, and no one could find him. His caretakers put out ads in the paper asking for a safe return. I mean, these were sweet people. Yeah, they Caring for this guy, right? Really cared for him. A few months after his disappearance, a fire broke out uh, in the local parish. And because of the smoke, all the buildings in the area were evacuated, which included the local prison. As the inmates were streaming out the door, guess who appeared among the inmates? (laughs) Yes, Peter. No one was sure how he got in there, how long he had been in there, why Why? he was in there. (laughs) No one knows. That's where he went by choice. He was just in there. So to keep him from disappearing again... Okay, this is a little wet, wet. It was good. It was it was well intended, but he was forced to wear a collar that read Peter, the wild man of Hanover. Whoever will bring him to Mr. Finn at Burhamstead will be paid for their trouble. And he wore this collar the rest of his life. I mean, it was well intended, but. You know, it was, but at the same time, like if he wants to go live in the woods or in a prison or I mean, at this point, why are we forcing him? Yes. He obviously knows how to take care of himself. But, you know, again, good intentions. Good intentions. Peter died in 1785, around the age of 70. Okay. And he was buried in the cemetery of St. Mary's in North Church, where people still deliver flowers to his grave to this day. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I kind of felt like there were so many people that came forward in the story to help care for him. Sure. Yeah. He wasn't like, you know, he wasn't treated poorly 
Right. You know, at like a sideshow. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've seen sure that even in modern mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Now, you were talking about Peter. Like, maybe he can survive on his own. So yeah. why do they try to, like, contain him? Well, Peter, since he was in the royal court, is in many royal paintings. In paintings with the king. Oh, if you wow. go look, you can find Peter the Wild Boy standing in, like, the royal court in his, like, little outfit, like, his little suit. Aww. The one that I saw, he was in, like, this little green, it was, like, a green jacket with, like, the puffer, mm-hmm. like, collar. People have been able to look at these paintings and also reference some of his um, mannerisms and things. And what they think now is that he suffered some- from something called Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. It's a rare genetic condition that causes distinctive facial features, which he had like this bowed lip and a different like face shape, and it causes intellectual disabilities. So this may have even explained why his family wind up abandoning him too. Okay. Because they didn't know how to care for an intellectually disabled child. And that's why he also never developed any kind of language or anything like that. Okay. So maybe he was older when he... It's possible. It's possible. But still, obviously a really tough person to survive the wilderness as a child. Incredible, right? Incredible. We'll wait to hear this next story. Oh, okay. Also in the same time frame, uh, this is in 1731 in Sanji, France. Villagers spotted a young girl dressed in animal rags stealing apples from an orchard. Villagers believed her to be around 18 years of age, so older, mm-hmm. but definitely young. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't say she just kind of wandered into the village <laughs> because... For unknown reasons, the villagers, upon seeing the girl, decided to send a bulldog to greet her. Like, at her. Now, she was frightened of the dog, sure, having lived in the wilderness, and she took out a club and with one swipe just took out the dog. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and then she retreated into the forest. So. Like a bad A. (laughs) Like, she's doing all right. Yeah, she can take care of herself. Well, she's probably had to fend off uh, animals before. Yeah. Yeah. Villagers eventually went up capturing her and soon realized that she didn't speak any formal language. Instead, she communicated much like an animal, often howling and growling. Um, She was hospitalized, hospitalized in Chalons, and she was baptized as Marie-Angelique Memmi Leblanc. Oh, pretty name. It is really beautiful. With that, doctors and other experts immediately moved towards, quote, civilizing her. It was clear that she had only eaten raw meat, and she was very adept at skinning and eating animals. She preferred to skin and eat her own animals. When doctors tried to feed her traditional cooked food and wine, all of her teeth fell out. Oh, wow. They're not really sure why that happened. Maybe they just weren't conditioned to eat harder, tougher food or, well, obviously she didn't have any dental care. So that was right. probably part of it. But isn't that bizarre? That's very bizarre. I wouldn't have expected that. It was later discovered that Marie Angelique wasn't French at all, but was actually, oh gosh, this gets me every time, was actually a Sioux Native American that had been captured by French slave traders, had her body painted black, and forced her to board a slave ship. 
That ship was believed to have crashed along the shore of France, where Marie Angelique and another girl washed ashore. She and her companion lived in the French wilderness for 10 years before she and her friend were separated and Marie Angelique was captured. Wow. So she was only eight years old when this started. What a Yeah, taken away thing. from her family, oh put on gosh. the ship, shipwreck, washed ashore, and then survived in the wilderness. Wow, for 10 years. For 10 years. Wow. Wow, exactly. Now, despite her traumatic start to life, Marie Angelique would eventually regain her health while in the hospital. Even more incredibly, she soon learned to speak French under the tutelage of several patient teachers, even though she had been mute for a decade. Wow. Wow. Cool, huh? Yeah. She began mingling with nobility and was given a generous allowance by a duke and permitted to roam around and explore Europe. Many of her friends were prominent members of society, like doctors and authors. For a brief period of time, she even tried her hand at becoming a nun. Oh. I know. While the Duke's death in 1752 left Marie Angelique without financial means, she was soon able to secure other patrons thanks to her numerous wealthy connections. By the time she died at age 63 in 1775, she was notably wealthy herself. It was said that she preferred to wear silk and velvet clothing, and yet she still maintained a certain wildness in her appearance. Oh, I think I would like her. I think I would really like her, too. <laughs> I mean, she's just like, I'm not going to let anything hold me down. No. I'm just going to yeah. crush this. And then especially like in that time. Yes. Like it, it's even, I don't know. It just means even more that she was able to do all that back in the 1700s. Exactly. And I love the idea of her wearing silk and velvet, but then like crazy hair. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. There are pictures of her. Really? As well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's really fascinating. The whole thing's fascinating. That's so cool. That's a good story. Yeah. The next major tale of a feral child was in 1867. Danny Sanachar was found by hunters in India's Uttar Pradesh jungle. They were shocked to see a six-year-old boy running with a mother wolf and her pups into a den. They decided to rescue him, so they smoked the wolves and the boy out of the den. They killed the mother wolf. Aww. I know. This is this is the, uh, the does the dog die trigger warning hmm. and captured the little boy. That's so traumatizing for that little boy. It literally I was think, like his mom. I know. I'm going to assume. I, I know. But I think what had happened is what happened was <laughs> <laughs> um, they were they were trying to retrieve the boy. And, of course, the wolf was aggressive. Yeah. You know, it was her puppies. It was her den. It was yeah. The yard. So I think they did it with the best of intentions of sure. saving the boy. What would we do now? We would do the same thing. We would probably save do the, the same baby thing. from yeah. a wolf. You're going to no. save the baby. Yeah. Exactly. But, yes, very traumatizing. Oh. Um, it was clear the child never learned to be around human beings. And, in fact, it is believed he thought he was a wolf. He, at six, you would. Yes. At si my my six year old thinks he's a kitty cat most days. Yeah. So like, and he has humans. To he tell has him. humans. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you clarified that. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, I can see a six year old totally believing he's whatever he's yes, around. Of course. So, um, Danny obviously had uh, 
you know, some strange characteristics. He would only walk on all fours. He would only speak in wolf-like grunts and howls, and he preferred raw meat. Okay. You know, similar yeah. to the yeah. other stories we've talked what about. What you're used to. He was taken to live with missionaries at the Sikandra Mission Orphanage in the city of Agra, where he continued to work, walk on all fours and howl like a wolf, only eat raw meat, and sometimes even chew on bones to sharpen his teeth. Now, of course, I didn't really find why did people think he was sharpening his teeth, but several articles I looked at listed this. So okay. apparently that's what they thought he was doing or that's what he thought he was doing. Right. Because of this, he became known as the wolf boy. The wolf boy. Yeah. The missionaries attempted to teach him sign language by pointing, but he was never able to grasp language of any kind. Uh, Donnie was able to make some progress, though, while at the orphanage. He learned how to walk upright. He learned how to put on his clothes. And he learned how to eat from a plate. It was noted, though, that he would always sniff the food before eating it. Which, I mean, I get. And almost, you know, that's how you would do if you thought, you know, is this food rotten? Is it is it edible? Yeah. Right. Is this something that's edible? Right. And animal dogs sniff their food. Yeah. Actually, there are people who have to yes. like actually. Yeah. I'm not one of them, but like I know that there are people who just are out in the world. Who well, have I to think it's all connected. You know, like yeah. the olfactory senses. Yeah. I mean, it smells good. Yeah. It looks good. But it like some good. people have to do it before yes, they eat. Exactly. Something. So I didn't find that was like that bizarre, but I guess it depends on how he, he did probably it. learned it though from the animals. Yes, I would assume. I would assume so too. Sadly, the one human trait that he picked up the most was chain smoking cigarettes. <laughs> How did I know you were going to say that? I just knew it. I don't know. I just, there are several pictures of him that mm -hmm. you can find online. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, the cigarettes was wound up being his thing, his which it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, despite the strides he made, he never really learned human language and fully adjusted to life among people at the orphanage. He ultimately died of tuberculosis in 1895, Aww. and he was just 35 years old. Aww. Yeah, so not not the greatest story, um, but as you have um, alluded to earlier, if his story sounds familiar, it is because it is the inspiration for uh, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. Okay. So this is the story that he was based on, okay. his boy living with wolves um, wolf in India. Boy. Yeah. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm still blown away that like somebody like, and it says something about the wolf too, because I don't think that's typical behavior, but maybe because she had babies, like she was in that maternal, because normally yeah. a child might be prey. I don't know. You know, it's I don't funny. know enough I, about wolves. Well, I genuinely want to like answer that question, but mm -hmm. everything that I want to answer it with is because of these romantic movies I've seen of like, oh, well, she's just naturally going to take in this baby. Like, yeah. I don't know that that's true or not. I love the idea just of we, that. The idea of yeah. it. That's exactly right. So when you really hear these real world stories, I mean, they're not exactly what we think they are. Like, we think we know, but we really don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. But I have heard, like, have, have you seen, like, the the cats who give birth and then they're introduced to an animal that they would normally see as prey? Yes. But because they were introduced, like, right at the right time, yeah. they look at that, whatever it is, as Yeah. Or just imprinting. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's kind of beautiful, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this last case really broke my heart. Mm. Um, I had to step away from it and come back to it several times. But I feel like moving forward with telling you the story is the right thing to do um, to give her a voice. Um, This next story is very difficult for me just because it stems 100% from neglect and abuse. Mm. Um, You can argue that our next child, who is named Jeannie Wiley, suffered more than the previous children we have referred to um and and hers really to even look at her story you have to go back we do know a lot about her parents because she's been studied quite a bit um and that's kind of where i'm going to start um unfortunately the person that was supposed to protect her and take care of her was the person that wound up basically taking her her childhood taking her life from her um and and all the ways that matter mm-hmm. you know um the beginning of her story we look at her father named clark wiley clark was born in 1901 in the pacific northwest to judah wiley and pearl may martin clark wiley early in his childhood his father passed away and his mother was occupied running a brothel which left her little time for clark so whenever he was with her it was in and out of different brothels and she just didn't devote any time for him truly um this led to neglect and eventually he was removed from her care and placed in a series of foster homes and orphanages and it just resulted in a very unhappy childhood for clark with no relationship i mean no relationship with his father and then no relationship with his mother either because she was preoccupied um you know with her other endeavors that's really sad. It, it, it is. And um, while it doesn't excuse anything, this is believed to be kind of the root of his dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, in early adulthood, Clark's mother did reenter his life and began trying to repair their relationship and make up for lost time. Unfortunately, this almost screwed him up even more because Clark became really unhealthy. It was an unhealthy attachment to his mom now. And he oh. placed her above anything else. I mean, her approval... Her well-being, her, um, yeah, approval, but her like acceptance. Yes, mm-hmm. her acceptance, um, her love, that affection. That was all that he really focused on. Okay. Now Clark's relationship with Jeannie's mother, Irene, was really unhealthy too. Uh, Irene was dominated by Clark. She was twenty years younger than Clark and sustained a head injury as a child, which resulted in some neurological damage. Which really, it affected her eyesight more than anything and left her partially blind in one eye. And fortunately, this damage would only get worse because Clark started physically abusing her and would violently beat her daily. Okay, so just a bad guy. He's a piece of garbage. A bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's a bad guy. All through his life, Clark openly said that he hated children. Despised them. Didn't like any of the noise they made. Didn't care for them. Nevertheless, after five years of marriage, Irene became pregnant. Mm. Even though Clark continued to beat Irene daily and nearly strangled her to death near the end of her pregnancy, she birthed a healthy baby girl named Susan. Immediately upon the baby coming back home, Clark detested her, saying he couldn't stand her crying. He began to put the baby in the freezing garage to sleep through the night. Oh, I hate him. Yeah, he's pretty awful. This is a pretty awful story. As a direct result, at 10 weeks of age, their firstborn daughter contracted pneumonia and died. A year later, Irene gave birth to a baby boy. 
Unfortunately, the little boy was born with what's called RH factor disease Mm. or RH factor incompatibility. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with Mm -hmm. us? Yeah, it's a disease that with a condition, the antibodies of a pregnant woman's body destroy the blood of the baby. Mm -hmm. And the baby died two days after birth. Mm Mm-hmm. They then became pregnant again. Well, you would think that um, uh-huh. they would maybe avoid that. Yeah. Um, so they, they should have. Yeah. They should have avoided that. But no, they just have another baby. Yeah. They became pregnant again and had a healthy boy named John. But Clark still hated the sound of babies. He hated all the sounds of babies. Crying, babbling, talking. All of it frustrated him. Oh, I just totally burped. <laughs> That's a baby sound. Yeah. That's totally a baby sound. <laughs> I hate that sound. <laughs> All of it frustrated him. Irene was encouraged to keep John quiet and not speak to him. Oh. By the time John was four, he had obvious linguistic delays and he was sent to live with his maternal grandmother. There, he made a lot of progress. Sure. Therefore, indicating it had nothing to do with John's delays. It had to do with him not being exposed. Well, what, which it would. Yes. If you don't even speak to a child. Ugh. When John was five, they had another baby, a girl named Jeannie. Jeannie was born in 1957. She, too, had an RH incompatibility. But after a blood transfusion, she recovered. At three months of age, she was diagnosed with a hip dislocation and had to wear a splint for her first year of life, which resulted in Jeannie walking later than other kids her age. She also had a hard time introducing solids into her diet and was always underweight for her age, sometimes even showing signs of malnutrition. Mm. These two factors, though, caused Clark to arbitrarily decide that Jeannie was mentally disabled. What's crazy is the delays were almost assuredly caused by the Clark's by Clark's treatment of her. Sure, yeah. Nevertheless, Clark told his wife and son not to interact with her and oh. pay as little attention to her as possible. Because even if she did have mental, you know, delays, like that's not the answer. Oh, to him it definitely was. As you can expect, the further neglect caused a drop of additional weight and for her to be further delayed, mm-hmm. thus confirming Clark's own conclusion. At 14 months of age, Jeannie developed pneumonia. The doctor that saw her, being unaware of the treatment at home, agreed with Clark that she could possibly be delayed. Because at 14 months old, you He's don't... Like, you're yeah, still... she's a little underweight. She's a little malnourished. She's not walking as well. Sure. And he's going by what the parents are telling him. Right. Clark, again, seemed to think this filled the prophecy. Like, absolutely, the doctor confirmed it. She's definitely mentally delayed. Around this time, Clark Liley also started isolating himself and his family in their Los Angeles home. He prevented his wife and son from leaving the house unless it was completely necessary. And with this supposed confirmation of Jeannie's mental illness, he felt shame and said that no neighbors or friends could ever see her. And he started locking her away. (sighs) 
yeah. breaks my heart. It really does. It's this is he's a piece of garbage, mm. and it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult the way that this this whole story unfolds. When Jeannie was almost two years old, Clark's mother was struck and killed by a drunk driver while she was out taking a walk with Jeannie's older brother, John. The driver only received a probationary sentence. Gosh. Yeah, it's awful. I didn't really find out exactly why, but there were some circumstances whereby that's all he received was this probationary sentence. Whatever the reason, it completely destroyed Clark. Like any, any like sane amount that he had in him that was like controlling him, this, this was it. Because like, again, his, he had that unhealthy attachment with his mother. Exactly. Exactly. He began to resent society. He felt that everyone had failed him. He even went as far as to blame his seven-year-old son for his mom's death. Because he was out walking with yeah, her. With her. When it, oh, lovely. Yeah, lovely. Exactly. So I'm sure this helped John a ton. Oh, my yes, goodness. Exactly. I mean, trauma upon trauma upon trauma with more trauma. Clark moved his family into his late mother's two-bedroom home. Okay. Okay. So she passed away. He immediately was like, we're moving into mom's house. However, Clark gave clear instructions that his mother's room and her car were never to be touched. Okay. They were left exactly as they were the day she died. Clark began locking Jeannie in the back bedroom to prevent her being seen by anyone. And the rest of the family moved into the living room. Clark slept in a recliner, Irene in a dining room chair, and John was made to sleep on the floor. No one was allowed to leave the house. This just makes me so sad because I think I had such a good childhood. And I just think, I don't know, like to be just this little defenseless kid and then like not even have a safe place. Ugh, it's just awful. It is. It is. Jeannie's room was dark with blacked out windows mm. and the only items in the room were a crib, which was more like a cage, mm -hmm. a children's toilet, and some curtains. During the day, Jeannie was strapped to the children's toilet in a seated position with a strap Clark had designed. At night, Clark would tie Jeannie in a sleeping bag and place her in the crib with the metal lid on top. Oh my gosh. I know. At a time when most children are skipping, hopping, running, and climbing, Jeannie had no way to stand or even stretch her limbs. Yeah. Just at the very least, how uncomfortable. Yes. And, and I mean, obviously, she had no chance of her, de her body developing. She, she, yeah, normally. of course. She's no. going to have, like, atrophy and all kinds of. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I know we're not supposed to judge. But I just okay. You can slap, judge this guy. I, well, I want to slap judge this the guy. mom too. Yeah. And again, I know it was a different time because uh, what is this? We're in the '60s by now. Yeah. So I know it's different time, and women didn't have necessarily the same opportunities, or it was a lot harder. But like, still, you know, my grandmother raised all five of her kids by herself. Like, I don't know. You just you, yeah. you protect your kids. I think what you have to remember in this story, because there's it obviously unfolds a little bit more, is I do believe that Irene and then subsequently John were victims of abuse as well. 
Remember, she's being beaten yeah, daily. That's true. That's true. And, and while, she had a, a and head. she has this head injury. Okay. And so, you know, she so she does have some delays in decision making and she's partially blind and again getting beaten daily. And, you know, I imagine, you know, Clark is I don't know that she chose to have these children, I guess. Yeah. Is, you know. Yeah. And maybe just literally because I think, well, why don't you leave? But maybe she just couldn't. Yeah. Maybe she just couldn't. <sighs> so um, you're allowed to judge Clark, though. Big time. Oh, I definitely am judging oh, Okay. Clark. All right. Good. Good. Judge away. <laughs> <laughs> judge away. <laughs> um, so, again, we're back to she's strapped down Aww. all the time. Um, worse yet, she was never allowed to make noise. Never. If Jeannie did, she was beaten with a wooden plank. A toddler. Um, yeah. Well, um, this is from the age of two to 13. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's that's about the age where authority became aware <sighs> of her existence. So a long time. Yeah. A long time this happened. Beginning at toddlerhood. Beginning at toddlerhood. Just that's right. Life. Right. A baby. Yeah. And Clark also, in a, another truly bizarre twist, wouldn't communicate with her using any kind of words, like if he was um, dissatisfied with something she was doing. Instead, he began to growl and bark at her and even grew it out his nails so he could scratch Jeannie like a dog if she made noises. He's weird. <laughs> and a piece of garbage, as I've said. Like the worst. Yeah. Like the worst vile kind of human being. Yeah. I have no words. I yeah. truly just don't, Stephanie. I no. No words. No. No. Jeannie was fed only baby food and liquids by Clark or her brother John under Clark's orders and was never introduced to solid foods. Most significantly, Jeannie was never spoken to. As a matter of fact, the entire home was quiet as Clark despised noise so much that even Irene and John were not allowed to speak to each other. Also, radios and TVs, forbidden. Of course. In the house. No noise of yeah. any kind. Nothing. Yeah. Clark was so into controlling his family that he kept a journal detailing the abuse and domination he had over them. Jeannie's brother was allowed to go to school, but when he came back home, he had to confirm his identity before being let back in. I tried to find what that meant. Like, how do you confirm your identity? But I couldn't find exactly what that meant. Just that he had to do something to confirm who he was. Um, it, it was strange. So, yeah. 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 Just as Clark had des had designed, most neighbors didn't even know that Jeannie existed. Of course not. As a matter of fact, most of what was going on in the home during this time is known only because of Clark's journals. Wow. Wild, right? Yes. While Jeannie was subjected to the most abuse, John and Irene were abused as well. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. They received regular beatings, especially if they tried to speak to Jeannie. John also began to abuse Jeannie. In a short time, abuse was all he knew. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That I can look at with a little more great. Not that it's okay, but like, you know. Yes. I know. It's literally all you know. That's exactly right. Clark told Irene that if Jeannie survived until she was 12, because remember, he had this whole idea that she's, you know, mentally incapacitated like her you know she's not a survivor she's not strong right. she's gonna pass away but he told irene that if Jeannie survived until she was 12 she could take Jeannie to get help oh okay 
However, <laughs> when Jeannie was almost 14, Irene decided to leave Clark. <laughs> uh, finally. Yes, finally. You know what they had a fight about? They had a big fight. It was because she didn't like that Clark didn't like her call, let her call her mother. That's what the fight was ultimately about. Not the beating, not her daughter, not John, who had recently turned 18 and run away. Right. She was upset she couldn't call her mom. Yeah. So, see, I'm really not a fan of hers. It's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be. Yeah. You don't have to be. But she was like, well, I don't like that I can't call my mom. So she just got mad and left with Jeannie. Okay. I mean, thank goodness she did. Right. However. Like that was the catalyst? That that was it. Mm -hmm. Irene took Jeannie to her mother's home where they stayed for two weeks. Because Irene was almost blind, she decided to apply for disability benefits. While trying to find the office to apply, Irene mistakenly walked into the social services office. Oh. Yeah. Jeannie immediately caught the eye of a social worker. The social worker first thought Jeannie was a seven or eight year old with autism. But after talking to Irene and Jeannie, within a few minutes, she realized there was much more to the story. Because wow. remember, Jeannie's almost 14. Yeah. I mean, she was just, I said she was 14. She was just shy of turning 14. Yeah. The, the authorities were contacted and Clark and Irene were arrested. And Jeannie was taken to the Los Angeles Children's Hospital. She was placed under the observation of therapists and physicians specializing in child abuse. Jeannie's state horrified everyone that examined her. Even though Jeannie was 13, she was very small for her age. She was barely four feet mm. and weighed 59 pounds. Mm. Her skin was fair because of the lack of sunlight. And since she never chewed solid food, her baby teeth never fell out. Oh. She had two full sets of teeth. Oh, wow. Two full sets of teeth. Because of this, she drooled and spat often. <sighs> yeah. Poor thing. Yeah. Right? Jeannie had barely any muscles and her bones were very weak. Her limbs were constantly restrained, and which meant she could barely stand on her own two legs. Mm -hmm. And her arms were always folded in front of her. Think about like a bunny. Like mm -hmm. if you're pretending to be a bunny, mm -hmm. so your arms are kind of folded up by your sides and your wrists are kind of limp in front of you like mm -hmm. a little bunny. Mm -hmm. Because think about that's how she was like in the chair. Mm. Right. So mm -hmm. that's how that's how she stood. So she was kind of wobbly on her feet and had this little bunny pose. Her rib cage was smaller than average and her hips were also malformed. She was also incontinent because she was either tied to a toilet chair or in a diaper for 13 years. Oh, my gosh. While having normal eyesight upon her first exam first being examined, doctors realized she had a hard time focusing on objects more than 10 feet from her, which would have been about the distance she would have been required to see in her room. Yeah, because she's never seen anything further That's than exactly that. Right. That's exactly wow. right. Wow. Not surprisingly, she did not speak. On a mental level, she was about a 13-month. Oh. Like, she was about 13 months old. And she quickly, however... On a mental level, she was about 13 months. However, she started developing and responding to stimuli very quickly upon being hospitalized. She wasn't scared of people, but she didn't seem to have any attachment to them either. She treated them almost like objects, like even her mother and her brother. Wow. I can't believe she survived. 
this long I know. with this. This is kind of how I felt about telling her story. I mean, I hate, you know, the idea of somebody being subjected to this. It's simply horrible. But she did survive. Yeah. And she's here. Yeah. Yeah. She also st- started responding positively to sounds. She only responded negatively to cat and dog sounds. But now that we know more of her story, it's probably because of the abuse she suffered from Clark. Yes, because he made animal noises at her. Exactly. Exactly. Upon admittance to the hospital, the National Institute of Mental Health was notified, and Jeannie became the focus of a four-year study to determine what part language has in a person's development and vice versa. It was also where Jeannie received her pseudonym, Jeannie, which has been used to protect her identity from the press. Okay. So okay. this is not her real name. Um, but when she became part of the study and she realized, you know, everyone realized she was going to be in the papers forever. They mm-hmm. really did this to try to protect her. Good. So I really feel like a lot of these researchers and therapists and doctors, they really do feel like they tried to have her best interest at heart for the most part. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. After weeks of research, doctors were able to determine that she had the capability to speak, but could not do so because she had never learned a language. She also had no knowledge of nonverbal communication either. No gestures, no facial expressions or movements. She was able to communicate through making noise with other objects. Hmm. So what she would do is if she wanted your attention, she would like bang a chair on the floor or she'd move an object on the table. So that's probably how she learned to make noise in her room. Mm-hmm. That's the only way, because if she verbalized anything, she, right. she would get punished for it. Right. And so she never used any of those skills. Wow. After several months, it was officially confirmed that Jeannie suffered no reduced mental capacity. And her intelligence at the time of her birth was likely average. She was not autistic or otherwise delayed. She had simply not been given the tools to succeed. Her deficits were directly linked to her abuse and isolation. The same with her physical disabilities. Wow. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely. And fascinating. And fascinating. Yes. Because it's just like, wow, look at how much yeah. is just learned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. While in the hospital, Jeannie began to show great improvement. She began to put on weight. She began to control her bladder and use the toilet. She began to express emotions of curiosity and happiness and even starting forming relationships with her doctors. She would encourage them to stay when their sessions were over. Hmm. After months, she began to collect a bit of vocabulary and understanding of emotion to communicate feelings of happiness and fear. She also started to show affection to those she trusted. Oh, I know. Jean Butler, Jeannie's special education teacher, began fostering Jeannie. The hospital, though, did not approve of this because they thought it would jeopardize the study on Jeannie and her development. Regardless, Jeannie moved in with Jean, who reported that Jeannie started to express a range of emotions with words, which is a remarkable development. Because before, whenever she would have a large emotion, not knowing words to express it, she, if it was anger, she would just, you know, basically turn into a volcano, okay. you know, and just, start, mm-hmm. you know, go into rages and sure. things like that. Because you have these emotions, but you don't know how to express them. Mm-hmm. Or even care. You know, instead of just wrapping her arms around someone, she would start saying, like, I care, I like, those kinds of things. Okay. Unfortunately, though, the foster arrangement did cause problems. 
Jean began not allowing other specialists to work with Jeannie. While this may have been a way to protect Jeannie, it was perceived as a researcher trying to keep a case study all to herself, and Jeannie was removed from her care. Oh. I mean, this poor girl. There's just no stability. Yeah, she finally. Right? Yeah. yeah. Jeannie was moved in with the Wrigglers, who were both therapists committed to her care and therapy. So they were a husband and wife team. They were both therapists, and they both were working on Jeannie's case. Actually, they didn't even volunteer to take her. Another doctor came and said, I think you guys would be the perfect home for her. And they took her in. Okay. Which is really incredible. Yeah. Jeannie would remain in their home for four years. Okay. In that time, she truly flourished. She gained much more language. She also started communicating about memories. Oh. Meaning that she had knowledge of her previous years of abuse. In her own words, she described her father's abuse. This is a quote from her. Father hit arm. Big wood. Genie cry. Not spit. Father hit face. Spit. Father hit big stick. Father is angry. Father hit genie big stick. Father take piece of wood. Cry. Father make me cry. Father is dead. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is... I know. It's hard not to get teary, <sighs> right? It's hard not to get teary hearing that. Awesome. Now, the last statement, father is dead, was true at the time she made the statement. Clark took the coward's way out and committed suicide via gunshot wound before one of his court appearances for charges of child abuse. Of course he did. Of course he did. He left two notes before his suicide. One to John, his son, which in part said, be a good boy. I love you. Okay. <laughs> and one directed at police. One note and sources conflict as to which one contained the declaration. The world will never understand. True. Yeah. True. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. True statement. Clark. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. For I that. really don't understand. Yeah. Really don't understand. Charges against Irene were dropped after authorities concluded that her abuse of Jeannie was a direct result of her disability and the abuse inflicted on her. Okay. So, you know, I assume you can disagree with that. Uh, but at the time, that's what the authorities yeah. thought was the correct move. Well, and I wasn't there. Maybe. I mean, I do believe that it is absolutely possible to be so trapped that there's nothing you can do absolutely yeah so this might have been that but i question it when it's like oh you don't let me call my mom i'm leaving like she act she was able to leave at one point like was she able to leave all along and so why did it take her so long but again yeah yeah i mean unknown yeah i mean really unknown questions yeah she really hasn't given any any interviews we've never really gotten any in- insight sure. into her mind yeah what was happening but definitely a victim no question about that definitely a victim and my heart goes out to her right during Jeannie's stay at the regulars home her attorney john minor became Jeannie's legal guardian however irene regularly visited Jeannie and began to form a relationship with her when Jeannie turned 18 in 1975 brace yourself she moved back into her childhood home with Irene. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure why anyone thought that was a good idea, but not a great idea. 
No, no, I would not have uh, approved of this, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but wow. it happened nonetheless. Irene soon found out, however, that she was absolutely over her head. She could not handle Jeannie. And when I say can't handle Jeannie, it means she couldn't handle some of the emotional outbursts. She couldn't handle some of the, um, you know, the communication delays. She sure. couldn't figure out what Jeannie wanted. Jeannie would get frustrated. However, she did not contact Jeannie's doctors or therapists. <sighs> she contacted the health department who recommended that Jeannie be removed from her care and placed in a series of foster homes. Abusive foster oh, homes. come on. Exactly. Can she catch a break? <sighs> Needless to say, this severely affected Jeannie's progress. Like, all the progress she had made during therapy, mm. she basically regressed to the sure. point where she stopped talking. Oh. Um, she stopped eating. It, 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 it just... What a disaster. What a disaster. In addition, Irene sued the hospital therapists and workers who had participated in Jeannie's study after a release of the dissertation, Jeannie, a psycholinguistic study of a modern-day wild child, saying she didn't agree with the content and found most of it offensive. The lawsuit never went to trial and was eventually dismissed. However, as a result of the suit, Jeannie was never again in touch with the researchers and therapists that had helped her. This was incredibly disappointing as many of them had formed relationships with her. Oh. Jeannie finally moved into a public care facility in 1993 where she began receiving proper care and could receive visits from her mom and the Wrigglers who always kept in contact with oh, her. Oh, good. Exactly. She has at least one like true constant yes. in her life. Little is known about Jeannie's existence today. Really? That's oh, true. Wow. She kind of went into just obscurity as far as we know. She's still living in this home. Um, but again, she has the pseudonym. And so, oh, so nobody can find no, her. Which I actually think is probably for the better. Sure, of course. Yeah. She doesn't need just random people yeah. showing up, but she has left us with a legacy, albeit a sad one. When she used her own language, she knew words. Mm -hmm. But once your brain gets to a certain age, you can't understand grammar. So how to put together a sentence. Right. And it even has to do with how we think. We think in sentences. Mm -hmm. We don't think in fragments. Right. We don't think in single words. And so those synapses just never come together. However, communication and language are entirely attainable. Right? Mm -hmm. Jeannie could construct simple phrases to convey what she wanted or was thinking, like applesauce by store. Okay. Right? Uh -huh. So she's still communicating. Right. But again, she couldn't grasp the whole sentence of, we go to the store to buy applesauce. Sure. This also demonstrates that language is different from thought. Right? So you're thinking... We go to the applesauce and buy a store, but to be able to mm -hmm. communicate that is different. Mm -hmm. Jeannie remained an expert in nonverbal communication and had a way of expressing her thoughts to people, even though she couldn't speak to them. Mr. Wrigley recalled how one time a father and his young son, who was carrying a toy fire engine, passed by Jeannie. And they just passed by, he remembered. 
And then they turned around and came back. And the boy, without a word, handed the fire truck to Jeannie. She never asked for it. She never said a word. And she did this all the time to people. She could somehow communicate with them without using words. Oh. Isn't that incredible? I wonder if, like, that's kind of how, like, she evolved. Like, if she evolved, like, this ability to, okay, I can't communicate with words the way other people do. So, like, I'm just going to do it another way, the way I do know how. Yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So Jeannie's case poses some more ex existential questions about the human experience. Like, does language make us human? Right? Mm -hmm. One of uh, Jeannie's therapists um, said, it's possible to know very little language and still be fully human. To yeah. love, form relationships, and engage with the world. Jeannie definitely engaged with the world. She could draw in ways and you would know exactly what she was communicating. Mm. I know this is a lot to take in, these mm. stories. But I think, again, it's important to acknowledge these lives um, and what they've gone through and learn from them. And my biggest takeaway is how do we prevent, prevent these from happening again? Oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it's... I hate to use the word interesting because it seems so trivial based mm -hmm. on everything I said, but, you know, the knowledge that we can gain from some of these cases, which we would never in a million years set up. Right. You know, right. I mean, this is never something that you would subject a child to. Right. Um, and the fact that we were able to gain knowledge about, you know, the elasticity of the brain and truly the, the adaptability of children. Oh, so true. Yeah. And just humans. How do we adapt? True. How do we survive? How do we move on from anything? Um, so anyway, that is my episode on feral children. Wow. Very enlightening. Very enlightening. A lot of stuff to think about there about just, like you said, how we adapt and how we. Yeah. Just all of it. Very cool. That was a good one. Okay. Yeah. All right, kiddos. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. And join us next week as we bring you a new episode. Oh, more thrills and chills. On the dark oak. <laughs> okay, let's do that again. Okay, what are we saying? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. Join us next week as we bring you more thrills and chills. Ooh, thanks for joining. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.